Psalm 22:25-31 reads as follows. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Let us stand and sing, lift up your heads, number 226, please, in your hymnal. Our New Testament reading this morning is in the book of Acts, verse 8. It's page number 1011 and 1012 in your pew Bible. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandak, which means Queen of the Ephesians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of, this, of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of, of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, Here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. And Philip, however, appeared at the Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Our gospel reading comes to us from John chapter 15. The setting here is the evening of the Lord's Supper. Jesus is speaking privately with his disciples. And he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, While every branch that does bear fruit, 
He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I am happy to be back with you this Sabbath after a weekend away. Um, Sorry to start late. I think I encourage all of you to be late by that. At 11.07, the boat was listing badly this direction, rear corner there, but I see it's filled out nicely. Just want to encourage uh, myself to start on time and all of us to get here for the full service as we can. It's a blessing. Last weekend, I had a reunion at Monterey Bay Academy. It wasn't my signature year. It was the 29th year, so naturally, I was the only one who showed up. Um, Actually, there was one of our faculty children who was there, uh, as would be for any reunion. Uh, So my class was not well represented, but it was Pete and Ginger's 30th. Um, You can congratulate them on arriving at near old age after the service. Um, uh, Some of you are saying, oh, they're just children still, and indeed, it's all relative. And none of us can help the year in which we're born, and that's okay, isn't it? I just like to be on this side of uh, things That is to say, to uh, be experiencing the joy and challenge of life. That is a good good thing and a great blessing. And it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, privilege. Well, being back at Alumni Reunion was was a a great deal of fun, not only because I got to be with my son, who's there as a student, and to hear him play and sing and see all the things going on and uh, see all these different classes come through with their remembrances. It was a banner year for my sister's class, class of 87, and five of her classmates showed up, including my sister-in-law, so that wasn't particularly glorious either. But class of 82 had quite the turnout, and um, it was just really great to sit in a room with people that I had spent anywhere from 12 to two years with, uh, or one year rather, and to, to hear them update everybody on their lives and to talk about um, their journeys in very, very brief terms. Well, after this uh, event now, I've had a number of of Facebook friend requests. Uh, I can't decide whether to live my life digitally or live it personally, but it is wonderful to see the way in which Facebook enables uh, people to be in touch with long-lost relatives, friends, and classmates. So um, anyway, I've, I've been trying to uh, honor those and catch up with those Facebook pieces. But the interesting thing that's getting expressed to me uh, by people I'm coming into contact from my past is occasionally a sense of loss. 
if they haven't kept up their spiritual connection or if they've, if they've left church for whatever reason. And what was really wonderful and encouraging about watching uh, the sharing taking place with the class of 82 was to hear how many people have remained active and engaged with God and with church life in some form or another. And to see the difference that that made, I wish you could have been there with me to see it. And I wish you could be privy to what I've heard since. There was a a, a marked sense of purpose and optimism and connectedness that came from people who had maintained a relationship with Christ through the years and maintained a connection with church somehow through the years. There was a sense of health that was... uh, present in that. And I just can't tell you how positive that felt for me, especially uh, personally, but but also professionally, to see uh, at least one class in Adventist education uh, having been so thoroughly connected and reached and uh, remaining faithful. So I just wanted to pass along the importance, I think, of uh, what I saw. It was Visible to see the difference between those who had remained connected to Christ and, and, and his church. So that's a powerful thing to, to witness when you've been separated from somebody for 29 years and haven't witnessed that in their lives. So pray for those who are feeling after this reunion, this sort of sense of, I've been missing out on something. Pray for them. God wants them. God loves them. God cares about them. And to have people who've had that connection or that exposure at one time or another uh, express a desire, perhaps, to uh, re-experience that or to come back to some, but maybe not knowing how or what they're, pray for them. It's going to be uh, an amazing thing to see what God does as we come to these, uh, what we believe are last days, and to see the ways in which people are influenced and uh, the choices that they come to. And make So I just wanted to uh, tell you it was good to be away. It's great to be back. It was a wonderful experience to uh, be connected and catch up. It was more tiring than uh, work. Um, and so I come to you deplete. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I, I come back, though, uh, uh, having had a very rich experience indeed. We're in the season of kind of post-Easter, and... Uh, at least for this week, again, I'm going to explore a, a little more about what it means uh, dimensionally to be alive in Christ. That is to say, because of his resurrection, I too have experienced a resurrection. And you too can experience and have, in many cases, experienced a resurrection. There are two resurrections, and I'm not referring to the ones that take place eschatologically. I'm talking about the the resurrection of spirit, which we often refer to as a conversion, actually. It's when our hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh and we become alive to God. It's when we become receptive and responsive to God's word and leading and presence in our lives, and that connection begins to have some sort of meaning. That's a resurrection of sorts, from a state of being dead in sin to being alive in Christ. And there's a second resurrection that we experience, um, and it's, it's related. It's a resurrection of spirit. To be alive in the spirit is to be present to the living God, minute by minute and day by day. 
not just present, but tuned in and available. And this is an enlivening thing as well, profoundly uh, shaping in the way in which our experience and lives go. We see this really powerfully in the story that was just read of Philip. There are a number of features of this story that I, I just love and find so fascinating. We have now had the death and resurrection, Pentecost, well, not Pentecost, but a, you know, we've had a lot of things happen in the early church by the time we get to Acts chapter 8. We're not too far down the road in terms of history, but we've, we've, we've moved apace. The disciples are active in taking care of those who had come to Christ uh, through post-resurrection times and Pentecost and so forth. And Philip the eunuch, uh, Philip and the eunuch is a story that, that illustrates exactly what I'm talking about in the second resurrection, kind of of spirit, being alive in the spirit, that is to say. He is transported to this place. He's called to this place, taken. And it evokes the memory of Christ being in the crowd. Do you remember when Christ was accused of blasphemy and the crowd took him there in Nazareth up to the brow of the hill to throw him off the cliff? Some of you have actually been there. If you've been there, brow of the hill, it's it's an incredible place. There in Nazareth. They're about to destroy Christ, and his time is not yet. They want to kill him for being a blasphemer, so they think he's a blasphemer, making claims to be God when he's not, and so forth. And they're ready to throw him off the cliff, and he disappears in the crowd. It's as if he's taken, transported to another place. Now, this kind of mystery is beyond me, but it's not beyond God. I would call it, the term I would use is transported by the Spirit or transported in the Spirit. He's literally taken from the hands of those who would destroy him and kill him at this time and removed or able to move to a place of safety. Don't ask me about the mechanism. Talk to somebody who's into Marvel, maybe, um, comics, or somebody who's been to see the Avengers movie already, uh, something like that. They might have some ideas of the mechanism by which Jesus was able to disappear and move through the crowd or be moved to another space. But it's a miracle that we have hinted at in the gospel there. Very, very uh, beautiful one. And that same thing is evoked here in, in Philip. He is taken to this place. He doesn't know his purpose, but he's tuned into what the Spirit wants him to do. And as he looks around, he sees a man in a chariot reading, and he hears the words from the scroll of Isaiah. And since it's a desolate place and there's not much else around, he runs up beside the chariot. And he says, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And the response is given, how can I unless someone teach me or lead me? Powerful statement. And he gets into the chariot and begins to explain how Isaiah reveals Christ. There's themes of captivity and deliverance. Does that sound familiar to you before? Or now? See, there are only a few stories, right? And one of the stories that we all know because it's just rooted so deeply in our consciousness, in our civilization, in civilizations prior, is this idea of being captive to something 
and being freed, being released to something. This is one of the great story themes of our lives. It's one of those things that just runs as a stream deep beneath so much of the literature and the the things that we enjoy most. And he explains, Isaiah, who has so many of these themes running through his book, Captivity and Freedom, Deliverance, Messianic themes, we would call them. And he explains how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. And the Spirit is definitely there because this man reading Isaiah is obviously religious. He's obviously interested. He's obviously a seeker. He obviously wants to know truth. And as it turns out, he's an important person in Ethiopia. Now, if you go to modern Israel today, you will see black Jews. They are Ethiopian Jews. I did not realize that they existed until I went to Israel for the first time in 1992. And it was fairly recent that they had been uh, allowed to immigrate into Israel and were integrating into the population. And it was just fascinating to me to understand or to realize uh, the origins of all of this and to think back to biblical times of the interactions between the Ethiopians and the Jews going all the way back to the time of who? Solomon. Yeah. And so there have always been people of Jewish descent living in Ethiopia since the time, at least, of Solomon. And so uh, this eunuch has come back to Jerusalem, and he's been there uh, for an observance, and he asks for guidance, and it's given. And as he understands how Christ is the fulfillment of everything that was promised in Isaiah, he makes the radical commitment, I see water, what's to keep me from being baptized? These days, I, uh, as a pastor, wrestle with the commission which says teaching, basically, is important in this whole process. We have a denomination that values education and values knowledge and values a knowledge of truth. No other denomination in the world requires of its pastors educationally what our denomination requires. There are many educated people in other denominations. I'm not trying to imply that. But in order to enter ministry as a whole, our ministry has an incredibly high standard for education and practice. And this is, this is the process that, that we, we undergo to become. We must have a minimum of four years of service and a minimum of six years of education, higher education, in order, order to be considered. That's a 10-year track for ordination at a minimum. Well, I think in some ways that serves us very well. But the challenge then is we're also a denomination that has such a rich and full picture of the gospel and such a rich and full picture of who Jesus is that we don't have three fundamental beliefs. We don't have five. I can't sit down and in a four-sentence statement make somebody a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. We don't have a little uh, pamphlet on catechism or training. We don't have eight fundamental beliefs. 
We don't have 15. We don't even have 27 anymore. We have 28 fundamental beliefs, not to mention all the non-fundamental beliefs. And then we have a lot of things that we have to fix out there, too. Oh, yeah, you're the people who don't believe in blood transfusions. Oh, yeah, I've seen your church on the corner. It's the one with that pointy spire, right? LDS, isn't that you? Oh, yes, uh, you're the people who are vegetarian. Okay, that's an indictment, isn't it? Whatever people think they know or know, it's very interesting. And so the process of becoming a Seventh-day Adventist is just that. It's a process. You don't get 28 fundamental beliefs in one ride in a chariot. And so the challenge exists. How do I, as a minister of the gospel, how do we, as the people of God, nurture people into relationships with Christ and honor this commitment that's being made or sought to Christ in baptism while honoring the gospel commission to baptize and teach, to equip people, to help them know who it is that they believe in and what it is that they understand from Scripture. Well, it's not a concern for Philip. He sees a body of water and he baptizes the eunuch and as they come up out of the water, we don't see a dove as with Jesus' baptism. We don't hear a voice from heaven But it must have been very interesting for the eunuch because the text tells us Philip was taken away to another place. Now you see him, now you don't. I don't know what all that meant, but I can imagine that the Ethiopian eunuch had considerable excitement as he traveled back home. His prayer for guidance had been answered. And you see, it comes from what it is that we read in John 15. We all know this, but we don't think of it sometimes in terms of a process. Jesus says it's simple. Believe in me, and you have life. But now that life gets extended not just by believing, but by living your life in me. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Be the branch that's attached to the vine, receiving its energy and its sap, and I will make you fruitful. Because when you're attached, when you're connected, what a healthy vine does very naturally is flower. And then it's pollinated. And then grapes are produced. And then the fruit of the vine is made available. It's there to enjoy. Fruitfulness is assumed. It's a natural part of being attached. It's a natural part of connectedness. It's an essential and natural part of being what the vine is. You see, when we read of communities, utopian in history and otherwise, that don't believe in sexuality or reproduction, we not only find that they die out incredibly fast, but we're fascinated by the fact that they came to that conclusion because it is so fundamentally askew from what we know to be a human kind of reality. A human kind of reality involves family at some level and children. And there will always be people in the family who end up not reproducing. That's part of the natural course too. But overall, 
as a society, as a humanity, as a, as a people, as a church, we wouldn't embrace an ideology that is skewed reproductivity. It's the natural order of things for things to reproduce themselves. So the grape bears its fruit. The tree bears its fruit. And so as Jesus describes this in John 15, as he tells people what it will mean to naturally be productive, he's simply saying it requires connectivity. It requires not only resurrection life and faith, being alive and being in me and made whole in me, but remaining connected to me because I am the vine and you are the branches. Oh, and it's not always going to be what you think. It will occasionally be painful because the Father comes and prunes the vines that they might be more productive. In other words, there are parts of our lives that need to be lopped off. They don't fit into the kingdom life and productivity that Christ has in mind for all of us. It's a painful sort of trimming. It's this thing we would call sanctification, which is a big old-fashioned word that means growing closer to the holiness of Christ. Being more like Him. And so the Father prunes us and trims us. Have you ever seen a vine in winter? It's tied to the wires and it's stripped bare and it kind of looks like a tea just sitting there. It's kind of pathetic. And what does it look like by spring? Multiple branches everywhere. Buds. Big green leaves. The vine is alive and well. By harvest time, it's heavy with fruit. It's a beautiful image that Christ chooses for the way in which we have our lives in Him. Shaped, changed, pruned, grown. And the natural result is a productivity that He ordains. So Philip has had this experience, right? He's been with Jesus as a disciple. He's seen what's happened. He's experienced a change of heart. He's given up that stony heart that is ours as we inherit the sin problem and exchanged it for a heart of flesh in which God can write on his heart his very laws and thoughts. This flesh heart is now responsive to the living God. And he's received the comforter. He's been open to this advocating presence, the spirit presence of God, this paraclete, this one who comes beside in an advocating way, this comforter. And he's choosing to live his life in that vein. By that spirit, he's moving. He's responding. And the immediate result is fruit. Not just a man, but a nation. Some of my African-American colleagues have done studies that demonstrate there have been Sabbath-keeping Ethiopians in Ethiopia since the Christian age began. What a connection we have to that body of faith and to this story. It's not complicated. 
Post-resurrection life is a life of connectedness. That's a purpose that only you can make. That's a resolve only you can come to. That's a decision only you can make. I can't promise you that any of us will experience what Jesus did or what Philip experienced. It would be pretty amazing to find myself in another place after the closing prayer today. I'm not sure what I would make of that. I would hope that with spirit eyes I would see what purpose God had for me in the place to which I had been taken. But I doubt I'm ready for that yet. I'm guessing you'll see me after the closing prayer. But I would like to be ready for that. I would like to think that the world can be changed one chariot ride at a time, one person at a time, because we've been connected, because we've stayed connected, because we've chosen to listen, because we've been willing to talk to a friend, because we've been willing to invite a friend, because we've been able to share what God has done for us. Because people can see the life in our eyes. People can hear the joy in our conversations. People can sense the connectedness when they grasp our hands. The Ethiopian eunuch said, unless someone guides me. My hope today is that we can be those guides. At this time, I'm going to invite our ushers forward. It's our chance to respond to this word of God as we've received it. It's our chance to give back. And today, the cause is church budget one very uh, near and dear to all of our hearts. The ushers will wait on us now. Thank you. And now may this God who resurrects us in heart and in spirit move among us that we might do his bidding and be the fruitful people he calls us to be. Amen.